Okay, well, we are going to dive back into the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. If you would turn there, Philippians 2 and verse 1. We started this great text last week, and as we did, we highlighted Paul's presentation from chapter 1. Very important, especially on these shorter books, to keep that whole context in mind. And to remember that we have a very circular element in that first argument. Paul began, and, uh, and he started talking to the church in in uh, Philippi then he transitions to talking about his relationship with them then to his circumstances back to his ministry to them and then finally to them alone as he brings some application and so that circular transition helps us to recognize that he is focusing on the entire church and on his ministry to them and then as as we understood that the nature of that presentation we jumped into chapter 2 and I'd encourage you if you have any questions kind of listen to that summary that we did last week you can go back and or to some of those previous messages if perhaps you missed any of them so we jump to our text in chapter 2 and our title was Where Does Your Mind Go? And we're going to continue with that title. We're actually going to be here for a couple weeks, uh, probably a couple weeks more. So you can just kind of keep that in the back of your mind. This will be our title. We're in part 2 of Where Does Your Mind Go? This whole section really runs from verse 1 through 11. And it is some of the most impactful teaching with regards to the application to our lives, which is always so important. It's wonderful to get good doctrine, but to see really powerful application is important for us. And the other thing that we see is there is just some tremendous doctrine, arguably some of the most impactful and succinct doctrine on the deity of Jesus Christ that we find in the Scriptures. So we're going to get into that, not tonight, but uh, in the, the weeks ahead. So you can be reading ahead and looking into that and trust you're using some of those resources. If you have any questions about that, you can uh, uh, give me a call. I'd be happy to remind you of some of those titles that I had mentioned before. So where does your mind go? And again, we continue with that tonight, part two. And let's take a look at our verses in Philippians chapter 2 and verses 1 to 11. If you would just follow along as I read, that would be wonderful. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion... Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, 
of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We talked about how our first point was uh, like a song last week, if you remember that. A song that began with a chorus and then was followed by three verses. And we titled this first point, Think About This. Think about this. And we began on that in verses 1 to 4. Think about this. And we continue with that this evening. And there was that resounding chorus that we remember was in verse 1. And we spent most of our time on this verse last week. Again, you can go back and listen to that. But what we noted primarily was the subtlety of verse 1. And also the overwhelming meaning of that verse. Paul just brings out this powerful impact of verse 1 as he proclaims this to us and, and brings forward this idea of these rhetorical statements as if to ask us and to think about, is this the case? Therefore, connecting us back to the previous section, if there is any encouragement in Christ. Well, is there? Is there any encouragement in Christ? If there is any fellowship of the Spirit, is there? Do we share part of our fellowship? Is it more rich because of the Spirit indwelling us? If there is any consolation of love, do we have that? Again, not a, not a consolation, not a second place prize, but the blessing that comes alongside of that. And if there is any affection and compassion, are these things in existence? Of, of course they are. And as we talked about, these are the most powerful truths of our Christianity. And they're set in this subtle little rhetorical question. Well, is there if? If there is any? And so Paul brings that truth and that question to our mind and as he does so, he, we brought the idea of we need to think about this. Verse 1 was built on those four rhetorical statements and then verse 2 brought the first response to this rhetorical statement. And as there was four parts to verse 1, there are four parts to verse 2 and they parallel them. We see that the, the ideas, uh, the, con, the encouragement in Christ are parallel with being of the same mind. We saw that if there is any consolation of love, that that paralleled with maintaining the same love. We saw if there is any fellowship of the Spirit paralleling united in the Spirit. And finally, if there is any affection and compassion in verse 1, how that paralleled intent on one purpose in verse 2. So there was this parallel of piece by piece that came along together in each of these presentations. And what we noted in verse 2 is that Paul's presentation to was, was to result in joy. It was to result in joy. Now, now this is uh, a direct connection to one of our verses that I want to uh, jump to from Hebrews briefly. But we need to think about that. Make my joy complete. How does that transition work? How does Paul ask these huge questions or make these huge rhetorical statements about what exists in Christ? 
fellowship, love, unity of the Spirit, compassion, affection, and then turn it to himself. Make my joy complete. Well, we see a beautiful segue to that in a text we'll get to in a few weeks in Hebrews that probably is fairly familiar to you. And it's in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. And then here it is. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. For this would be unprofitable for you. So as Paul says, make my joy complete. What he is is looking for is he is looking for a church that is harmonious. He is looking for a church that has great unity. He is looking for a church that has great obedience. For this is such an important point. This joy of the leader comes from the leaders who are overseeing an, an obedient flock. Who are overseeing a united flock. And that is what Paul is calling them to. His desire is that they would understand. Suppose that's me. Is now. Um, That he would understand all of these ideas uh, of, of unity that come forward. And this becomes such a powerful component when we think of this idea of, of unity coming forward and the joy that is, results in the hearts and the minds of the leaders. Paul's desire, as the rest of the verse reveals, is that they have this unity. Notice the focus on unity in the rest of verse 2. The whole thing is surrounded by unity. Being of the same main, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. All of this is a focus on unity. Unity and harmony envelop every one of these four parts of this verse. And that's so important for us to recognize. And that's where the joy comes in from the leader's perspective as he sees this going on. We see a, a similar concept in, in 1 Peter chapter 3. Let me read from you from, read to you from 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8, where Peter writes to the churches of Asia, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. This is what this looks like. This is the picture that's painted for us of this unity. It is those who are all living in harmony, who have great sympathy for one another, who are brotherly towards one another, kind-hearted and humble. And we're going to see very much more on this whole idea of humble. But unity just exudes from this. And Paul concludes 2 Corinthians with this very same idea where he writes in 2 Corinthians uh, uh, chapter 3. Well, he concludes it there, but he also writes in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 11 more of this identical component. 2 Corinthians, that is 13, excuse me. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, if you're noting those. 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. 
All the saints greet you. Notice all of the unity that he brings forward, that Peter brings forward as they are to be like-minded and to live together in peace and that the God of peace will be with them. There's this, there's this overall idea that one of the main components of the church is unity and is peace. And it's exactly what is going to bring about the joy that Paul is speaking about. And it's interesting where that originates. Romans 15 in chapter 5 tells us exactly what that is. Romans 15, 5 says, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Jesus. This is our first point back from Philippians chapter 2. Being of the same mind. Therefore, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. And what did Paul tell us that that same mind came from? That you be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. We can't be of the same mind apart from Christ Jesus. Why do we see people talk about Christ in our world, political people or other people, and we just find that we don't seem to be on the same page with them? Because they are not truly in Christ. They are not living their lives based on the same standard that we are. We're committed to this book. We're committed to being obedient to this book. Others are not, and it becomes so evident that they are not of that same mind. Well, not only that same mind, but they're to be of the same love. Wonderful text that the that we see in John chapter 13 and verse 34 that brings forward this idea of the same love. John 13, 34, the Lord writes, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. It, it is that, that same love. It is the love which we have from God. It is the, the same mind which we have from Christ. It's the same love we have from God. Because we know, as 1 John 3.19 tells us, that we love Him because He first loved us. We don't, we don't have any of this of our own. None of this love is of my own. My love that's my own is that, that other kind of love. It's not the agape love. It's the phileo love, it's the, the friendship love, where it's superficial. It's the eros love, where it's physical. But that agape love, it comes from only one place. It comes from Christ. It's the only way that we can do this, because God is the one who brings it to us. And what does John 15, 13 say? No greater love has any man than this, than that he lay down his life for his friend. And of course, Jesus was the one who called us friend he is the one who laid down his life for us so as we think of same love this is clearly saturated with christ united in spirit means literally of the same or of one soul it's the only time this word is used in scripture it's a very unique word it's a compound uh, usually when there is this connection with one love or same mind, uh, that there is uh, another word that, that uses that number one, that uh, ordinate number one, but not here. Here it's combined to mean one soul. And when we think about that, it means that, well, where does our soul come from? 
Well, our soul is that which is the inanimate portion of it, of us. It is what God gives to us. If we are to literally be of one soul or one spirit, as our text translates, it means that we are guided by that which comes from God, because otherwise we are not. How can we be sure that our elders are functioning in unanimity as we say that we are? The only way that that can happen is if we recognize that they are, as this passage says, one spirit or of the same soul. As they interact, they're not relying on their fleshly impulses. They're not bringing up their own agendas. They're not pushing forward their ideas. No. We all stop and we spend time and we pray about the matters that we're addressing and we make certain that we are in one accord, not just with one another, but with God. Because there is one spirit that guides all of this and there is no division, there is no faction, there is no separation in the spirit, nor can there be in the church. And that is what it means to be united in spirit. The last is intent on one purpose. Again, very similar to our first point of verse 2 where it says being of the same mind. They're actually the same word there. And the repeated theme of unity, again, comes back to us over and over again. Just look back, if you will, in Philippians to chapter 1 and verse 27 with me. Philippians 1, 27 says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. We talked about when we began Philippians in our first message that many people will say that the main theme of Philippians is joy and rejoicing. And it is a significant theme. Those two words appearing in combination about 17 times in this short four-chapter book. But what is a more powerful theme is the idea of unity. There is a thematic idea of unity that we'll see continuing to resonate throughout this book. And here it is again. Him focusing on the fact that the church must be united. And how many times have we discussed the side effects of when we are not united? What happens when the enemy or the flesh or the world drags out one of our members apart from the body, apart from the unity of the fellowship? They dwindle, don't they? Their fire begins to not be kindled by others. Just like a, a raging bonfire, you can have a four-inch log that has been in there for an hour and it's just hot and glowing on the outside. You roll that thing out away from the fire 10, 15 feet and it'll burn for a little while. Both in about half an hour, the flames are going down. About an hour later, there's no flame at all. And you give it about two or three hours and you can pick that up with your bare hand. And so it is with us. So is the importance of unity because we need one another. And so he brings this powerful idea of unity for us to focus on and remember that this has to be where we are. Our first point is again reinforced. Think about this. So as it is, as we move into the second stanza of our song, if we're going to consider the first, the chorus, the second one, the first stanza, and here in verse 3, the, uh, the second stanza, the chorus in verse 1, the first stanza in verse 2, and the second stanza here in verse 3. 
And our first verse was positive, and now, here in the second stanza, it teaches us through negatives to begin with. And what is that first negative? Let's look at verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Selfishness is also well translated as selfish ambition. Because it isn't just being self-serving. It's not just like, okay, I'm all about me. But it is an ambition. It is an outward element. I'm not only all about me when you see me or talk to me, but everywhere I go, my whole focus is me. You know, I I loved one of the statements that uh, one of the college kids that I used to teach back at the Master's University said, you know, well, we call those people me monsters because they're just all about me. And we understand that. We know what it's like, unfortunately, when sometimes we can be that way. You know, you can't ask my wife this, but if you did, she'd tell you there's times where I can be that me monster, right? Even still today, sometimes. But we see that all around us in our world. We all know people like that. It's all about me. You know, it's the world according to me. Let me tell you about that. You talk about something, they're an expert. I know all about that. Let me tell you about that. These are those who are focused on continuous self-exaltation. But selfishness, as we understand here, is, is that outward promotion. And one version actually translates this as strife, and another as factions. Because being self-serving tears people away, and it tears churches apart. That's, that's why Paul used the language of a body to talk about us. We're all separate parts. There's no repeat parts. God has placed us all here in the body to do our part. And when one of the parts gets torn away from the body, that unity is fractured. The functioning of the body is decreased. Those that are in the medical profession understand full well what happens when there are organs or major components of the body that are taken away. And that's what happens by those that are self-serving. And that's why faction is even used for that. The next word also in negation is empty conceit. The, The literal translation of that would be not according to empty conceit. Again, some versions translate this word empty conceit as vain glory. This is the pursuit of personal exaltation. Listen to what uh, Paul writes about this in Galatians 5:26. Galatians 5 and 26. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Isn't that exactly what he is speaking about in empty conceit? We're, we're busy exalting ourselves. Not only we're boastful, we're challenging others about where they are. Why do we do that? We do that because we think it's going to make us look better, don't we? Have we ever noticed that when you are standing as a bystander and you see someone who is doing this, who is boastful, who is challenging another, how foolish they look? How immediately you recognize that self-exaltation. How immediately you recognize that disunity, that factiousness, that horrible empty conceit. And that's exactly what's going on. 
It's just, uh, you know, Paul continues to use that idea so frequently as he discusses other texts. And then partway through this, now Paul turns from the negative back to the positive with that strong contrasting conjunction, but, and he begins after that, but with humility of mind. He begins with humility of mind. Dr. MacArthur notes the term means being low or shabby or humble. Humility of mind. Exactly the opposite of our two previous words, selfish or empty conceit. In this humble estate, we're to regard one another as more important than ourselves. To exalt others above ourselves is something that is absolutely contrary to our Christian perspective. But to be humble, this is the foundation of our Christian faith. This is, this is the base level that we, we always have to recognize. I, I'm sure if we were keeping track of how many times I have quoted Philippians 2-3 in messages here and elsewhere, it would be a large number. Because this is who we have to be. We have to be considering others more highly than ourselves. We have to be in humility of mind, considering them more important, making them more high and lifted up. Again, Paul writes back in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Yes, we have freedom. What does Paul write when it talks about freedoms? He said, yes, I can eat meat. I can eat meat sacrificed to idols. But if it causes my brother to stumble, I will not do it. Why do we find, you know, that the issue of drinking is brought up amongst so many leaderships in churches and they even will make covenants to say we're not going to drink? It's not that there's a problem with drinking. There is a problem with drunkenness. But a, a glass of wine occasionally or a beer occasionally, that's not only not sending anyone to hell, it's actually what Paul recommends for Timothy for his weak constitution. The problem is it could cause others to stumble. Alcoholism is a horrific affliction in our society. And uh, for, for someone in the church who has struggled with that, then, you know, to see Bill and I down at uh, Alabama Beverage Control. Oh, no, that's Atlanta Bread Company, isn't it? That's where we meet. Um, but you can imagine what they would think, right? Oh, there's Bill and Scott in there, you know, shopping for wine. Well, it must be fine for me. If they're going to have a little wine, I'm going to go have a little Jim Beam. Because that's how our world thinks, doesn't it? So Paul says, I will gladly give up everything because I want no one to stumble. And this is the idea of serving. It's exalting others above yourself. It's not relying, it's not requiring or demanding your own freedoms, especially at the cause of another's walk. Ephesians 5.21 says, And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. This is what we must be. We must be subject to one another. So think about that. 
Think about this repeat refrain of this rhetorical statement in our lives. In each of these stanzas, if any encouragement of Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if affection and and compassion. And as you think of those, recognize that each of those is mounding full and overflowing with the power from them. And then think about being united of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, and think on that. And then think about doing nothing from selfishness or conceit, but with humility of mind, regarding others as more important than yourself. It's just like a chorus that is ringing in our ears that we want to continue to remember over and over. Now, we're all, I think, pretty familiar with the hymn, Holy, holy, holy. You know, you just hear it and immediately your heart just kind of lifts, doesn't it? Because it is so beautiful. And when you're thinking about the words as you're going through the song, the chorus never leaves your mind, does it? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You know, and all of the rest of the song, it's holy, 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 is echoing through your heart. It's echoing through your mind. And so it is with each of these. The chorus in all of these needs to continue to ring through as we think about this stunning presentation of unity resulting in joy and of not being selfish or conceited. And then the last stanza the third in our hymn in verse 4 says, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Again, we have a negative and positive contrast. First, do not merely look out for your own personal interests. Everyone will by nature look out for his own interests. That's why that word merely is in there. It's not actually in the original Greek text. But it goes to show, and I think uh, one of the other versions that we often use says only, um, because we're always going to do that. By nature, we are concerned with our own interests. It's part of our flesh. We're not going to get apart from it. So Paul says, don't ignore those because that would be a command that we could not do. But he says, not merely for your own interests, indicating that there is another that we must consider. It's the same idea that Jesus gives us in his admonition to love our enemies. Back in in Luke chapter 6, the Lord gives a command about loving our enemies. And let me just read a couple verses for you back in Luke chapter 6 and verse 32. Luke 6 and 32, the Lord writes, if you, love, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And jumping down to verse 35 of Luke 6, But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. So it's not looking out for our own interest. We do that naturally. But it is looking out for those of others. It is is loving even our enemy. It's easy to love those in the fellowship. It's even easier to love those in our family, our wives, our children, our husbands. 
but to love those who are our enemies, to, to look out for other people's interests above our own. That is the attitude that we must have. We're to be looking out for our neighbor's goods. This goes all the way back to Exodus 22, where Moses in the law said, if you see your neighbor's ox or donkey, then you are to watch for it and you're to care for it. And there are even penalties if you fail. This is the overarching theme of being a Christian. Think about this. What is the main issue in 90 plus percent of the problems in our church? They stem from not obeying these verses. From not considering others more highly than ourselves. From being self, from being selfish, from having empty conceit or vain glory, for not considering others more important, for, for not considering others' goods. If we would do these things, the majority of the issues within the church would melt away. So it's clear for us what we must do. We must realize, we must put to heart and mind that this is how our lives must look. In what ways am I not looking out for the interests of others? And every one of us has areas where we are falling short. Inside this body and absolutely out to the world around us. So that's our marching order as we consider this. As we think about this first point of our text... Think about this. Think about it. Focus on it. Consider where God would use it to push and propel you farther than you have ever been because as you do, your growth in Christ, your strength and your love will be so magnified and you will so delight in that work that you will just be giddy as you move forward in proclaiming our Savior and living Him out. Because that's what he's done for us. That's what we celebrate. That's why we have eyes to see, particularly this time of year. I've shared with you before that when I was taking a class on pastoral ministries, the professor, Alex Montoya, said to us, you know, when you go to the hospital, to hospital visits, be prepared know the issues about the person, know the the frailties and the delicacies of what's going on in their lives. And he goes, and after you know that, put that all aside. Because what you need to look out most importantly for as you go to a hospital to minister is you need to look out for everyone else. From the parking lot when you get out of the car and you see that woman sobbing uncontrollably, you need to have eyes for her. When you walk in and you see that husband and wife clutching one another in front of the room, next to the room you're going to visit, you need to have eyes for them. Well, beloved, as we go out into this world right now, we need to have eyes for those others, not just for the things that we're doing, not just for the joy of going to spend time with our children or our wives or our other family members. We need to have those eyes for others because in this way, Christ will be glorified. In this way, We will exalt others about ourselves and be considering our neighbor's goods. And God will be glorified in an amazing way.